All right, so today we're doing, we're starting a new series called Unchained, um, and I'm excited for this series. We've been kind of ramping up to do this for a while. We just finished Second Corinthians, so we're in between books of the Bible. Sometimes when we finish a longer book, uh, we were in Second Corinthians for about six months. Sometimes when we, when we finish up something longer, we try, we try to do some shorter things. And this is an example of that. We're going to do more of a topic for the next uh, five or six Sundays and just kind of work through uh, something that I think all of us need help with, which is um, primarily how do we see more victory in our lives towards Christ and away from sin? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we see more victory, more uh, growth in our life over sin and temptation? So I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room who's a sinner. In fact, I know that. Uh, I also know that I'm not the only one who struggles uh, on a daily basis with sin. And I know we all do. And so we, we need God's word to help us uh, grow in this regard and to, to be able to see more uh, victory in this area. Um, of course, we know we're not going to see perfection while we're here on earth, uh, but we do want to see greater and greater growth. And so the purpose of this series is to just help us get there a little bit more, try to kick the ball down the field a little further for us. Um, so as we, as we talk about this, I'm sure some of you are probably excited about this. Some of you may not be. Um, but I think uh, the danger in some, something like this, a series like this, is that we, we try to just put in some super simple, like, steps to take. And okay, if you apply these three easy steps, you're going to stop sinning. Uh, and that's just not the reality. It's not, it's not. If there were three easy steps to stop sinning, we wouldn't be sinners anymore. So that's not a thing, right? We need to recognize that this is a, this is a lifelong uh, journey with the Lord Jesus. And this is a lifelong process of, of growth in him, of what, what the Bible would call sanctification, becoming more and more like him. Um, and so we're going to see the, the effects and the, and the issues of sin always in our life until we're with him in person. Uh, but there is good news. Even though we, we will have sin ongoing in our life, there is help for us. And we're going to ha- try to point you in that direction of help. So, so that's what we're going to try to att- attempt for the next uh, few weeks. So let's get first to John 8, 31 through 36. I think this is going to be kind of our overarching statement uh, that we need to wrestle with, and then we're going to seek to answer a question about this. So in John 8, 31 through 36, Jesus said, it says, He said to the Jews who had believed him, remember there weren't, he was, he was a Jew, he became a Jewish person, he lived among the Israelites, There were the people who were in power who didn't believe him, mostly. There were a few who maybe did, but a lot of people did believe him. And so he's speaking to those who believed him. And here's what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You've all heard that verse. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So honestly, I don't know what they're talking about there because they were enslaved to the Egyptians and they were enslaved to the Babylonians. 
and they were enslaved to the Assyrians, and now they're enslaved to the Romans. But whatever, they've never been enslaved to anyone. Um, whatever. And so they say to Jesus, how will you, how will we become free? And so Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. All right, so Jesus's point is this, that He's not talking about literal slavery in the sense of captivity, um, uh, being under slavery to a human force or, or government or person, but rather this issue of being a slave to sin. He says anyone who practices sin. So the idea there is this ongoing practice of sin, this ongoing unrepentance in sin is a, makes us slaves to sin. And then he says that a slave does not stay in the house forever, right? A slave goes into the house, and a slave is, by the way, very different than American slavery here. Jesus' mindset is more of indentured servitude, like you owe a debt to someone, so you have to pay off that debt by working for them. That's, that's what he means. So don't, don't import your own idea of slavery here, because it was very different in the, uh, in the early part of the American history and beyond that, and before that in the British Empire. But nonetheless, he's talking about somebody has to come to the house and work off a debt. So that guy doesn't stay in the house. He works, then he leaves, he goes back to his quarters or wherever he's at. And he then says, the son, a son stays in the house forever, right? A son belongs in the house with his parents. The slave, the servant does not. But then he says this, amazing, we've all heard these words too. If the son, he's talking about himself, Jesus is speaking of himself as the son of God. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so Jesus says here to us, listen, if I have the authority of, Jesus, of God in me because I'm his son, I am going to set you free from sin and you're going to be free. If I set you free, you're free indeed. So here's the thing. If Jesus has set us free, right? We believe his words. We know he's telling the truth. We, we know he's not lying to us. So if he's really set us free, why don't you feel free? Why don't I feel free? Like, have you ever thought about that? And gone, hmm, Jesus says he set me free. But it sure doesn't feel that way a lot of the time. And that's, that's really, I think, fundamentally what we have to address here. What we have to get, get our hearts to understand. And I hope to, to point you in the direction of the answer to that question and ultimately move us beyond that question to where our hope is. So here's what I'll say. I, I, I contend with this, that our biggest problem as it relates to fighting sin is not that we don't have the tools. We have the tools. We have God's word. God's word uh, tells us that it is sufficient for life and godliness. We have the tools in the word of God. We have the tools in the very person of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within believers. So our problem is not that we don't have the tools to fight sin. Our biggest problem, fundamentally, is that when we succumb to temptation, when we cave back into our old way of living, we are, we are not like 
unable to fix that issue because we have the resources to do that. The real issue is that we live in a state of spiritual amnesia. We forget whose we are. We forget whose we are. I didn't say who we are. I said whose we are. We forget this. We forget the gospel and we forget what Christ has done for us to make us a son who is set free. We, we, that's fundamentally the issue. Now that might sound super simplistic and it is simple, right? I'm not going to deny that. It, it does sound simplistic. I get it. And I'm not saying that because of that, we don't need to put other things in our life to help us. We need other things, right? We need accountability from people that love us. We need the church community. We need to sit under the preaching of God's word. We need to to put ourselves in a place where we're not going to easily succumb to the things that so, so desperately draw us back in. It's wise if you struggle with drunkenness to not drink, right? That's obvious. We know these things to stay away from the things. If you're addicted to pornography, you need to figure out a way to not be exposed to pornography. These are all true things. But fundamentally, fundamentally, the problem is not that we don't have the tools. Fundamentally, the problem is that we forget whose we are. And we, we, if we stand, I think, I really do believe this with all my heart, that if we were to look at Jesus in those darkest moments of temptation, it would be a whole lot easier for us to say no to those temptations. We say yes to those things because we stop looking at Jesus. And so our, our solution really is to, to continue to keep ourselves in him and to call ourselves back to him. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, and then we're going to get to Romans after this. But um, this is a passage that gets us to, the, to this issue of calling ourselves back to, to grace, to the gospel of grace. Um, Jesus says in verse 14 through 16, or excuse me, um, the writer of Hebrews says, speaking of Jesus, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's continue in the faith. Let's let's not throw it in. And then he says, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So first he says, Jesus has... um, passed through the heavens, he's become a human being, and and he lived a human life, which means he experienced all the things that you experience. Every temptation you've ever faced, Jesus faced as well. He is not in a place where he can't understand you. He does understand you because he's been one of us. And so he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And what does, what does the writer of Hebrews mean when he's talking about weaknesses? He's talking about sin. We know that he's talking about sin because the next thing he says is that Jesus can sympathize with us in every respect because he's been tempted as we are. So the, the idea of weakness here is not referring to physical weakness of our bodies, but rather spiritual weakness of our sinful inclinations. 
And the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, man, Jesus gets it because he was tempted as we are. But here's a key phrase, yet without sin. Jesus didn't sin. He was tempted in every way we are, but he didn't succumb like we do. Jesus was a different kind of man. He was a perfect man. He, he was completely sinless in everything he did. And that's very good news. So then what's the, what's the conclusion here? Look at verse 16. He says, let us then, okay, because Jesus is our perfect high priest who never sinned but understands our, our struggles with sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The scriptures call us in those times of need, in those times of temptation, in those moments when we're so, so tempted to be drawn into something that isn't of Christ, we can actually draw ourselves near with confidence to the throne of grace and receive the mercy and receive the help that we need. That's an amazing promise. So our biggest problem is not that we don't have the tools. Our biggest problem is that we don't remember who Jesus is in the moments we most need to. And so the solution is we need to remember and draw near to him because of who he is and what he's done. So going back to Romans, then here's what we're going to do. For the next five or so weeks, five or six weeks, I'm not sure how long we'll be doing this exactly, but we'll, we won't be here forever. We're going to primarily spend the bulk of our time, except after today, in one chapter, Romans chapter 8. So Romans 8 has been a go-to for me um, for a number of years. Um, if you've ever sat down with me for a counseling session, and some of you have, um, more than likely I've pointed you to something in Romans 8. Um, I know there have been a number of you who have struggled with uh, understanding whether or not you're truly a believer and what that means and what that looks like. And I tell you, read Romans 8 until you believe it. That's what I always say. That's my thing. Read Romans 8 until you believe it. Because it is, where, it is the greatest source of help, I think, in the scriptures to get us to understand whose we are and what that means practically as we walk through this very challenging life we all live. Romans 8 is a treasure trove of gospel goodness. And, it's, and I think if we, if we sit under it and we listen to it, we are going to have um, more and more resources in our hearts and in our minds to begin to uh, see more victory over sin. But here's the thing. So for today, for today, we can't just jump into Romans 8. We've got we've to establish some things. Paul has seven chapters in front of Romans 8, and they all lead up to Romans 8. In fact, you can say Romans 8 is the center of the book of Romans. Everything before it prepares us for it, and everything after it basically flows out of it. Right? After Romans 8, you, you know, you've got a couple chapters in there that are a little bit technical and things, but really the primary uh, 
thing that Paul's doing in the second half of Romans is saying, showing us how this gospel of Jesus Christ actually plays out practically. And before that, in verse uh, chapter one through seven, rather, it's all leading us to that point of understanding our, of what he's going to say there. So here's what we got to do. If we're going to talk about how to fight sin, how to, how to see more victory over these things, we need to answer a very fundamental question, which is, what is sin? Like, we have to know what our enemy is if we're going to fight them adequately, right? We need to know what sin is and what God has done to address sin, and then we'll, then we'll see what Romans 8 has to say to us. So for today, we're doing a very, very quick flyover like an extremely fast flyover of the first seven chapters of Romans. Someday we'll preach through Romans verse by verse. We'll do it right. We'll spend a lot of time in it. We don't have the time for this series to do that. So we're going to just hit the highlights, like just hit the, hit the big things, okay? And I think fundamentally, you can boil chapters one through seven down to three main points, three main uh, arguments that Paul makes to prepare us for what chapter 8 has to say. Um, the first main point is found in the first three chapters. And here it is. If you're taking notes or anything, you want to write it down. It's very simple. The first point of Romans is that sin is everywhere within us. It has permeated every corner of our life. There is no escaping sin. It's everywhere. And to, to show you that, to highlight that, I'm going to take us to just two passages of these first three chapters. First is Romans 1, 18 through 23. Look at what it says. We'll read it. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right, so let's stop there for just a second. Um, Paul's making a point here that, that the whole world... Everything in creation screams that there's a creator. And the only reason we refuse to believe that there's a creator or choose to, to not acknowledge him as our creator and our Lord is because we have sin within us that, that makes us suppress the truth. It's a suppression of the truth, right? That's what he says in verse 18. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, and so, so he, said, he goes on to say that, look, everything that you see in the world can, should convince you that there's a God beyond you. Like, th this is so obvious. And it's just amazing. When, and you can, you can do this in any subject matter of, of science or anything else. But man, just look at the complexity of the world. It's impossible to really, I mean, it's not impossible if we suppress the truth, but really, if you're looking at things, you're, you should be asking yourself, how could this have just happened by accident? It, 
it's extremely hard to get there, I think. And, and so I, I read a book, uh, I don't remember what it's called, but it was by Bill Nye, the science guy. You guys remember him? I grew up with Bill Nye. And I read his book, and it was his book, um, this was a few years back, probably five or six years ago, and it was basically his defense of the evolutionary theory and why we all evolved. And his answer to how can we just have had this happen, his answer was extremely unsatisfying to me, and it was just, give it more time. More time. That's what he kept saying throughout the whole book. Don't bother reading the book. It's a waste of time. Um, but, you know, that's his, that was his whole thing. It was like, it's just, just give it more time and it'll happen. And it's like, that, that really is a pathetic argument, actually. Um, so, so, again, like his faith that all of this happened by accident really boils down to just there had to be enough time. That's what he's putting his faith in. He's still putting his faith in something because he can't prove any of it. So again, I'm not picking on Bill Nye. I like Bill Nye. He's a fun guy. Whatever. That's fine. But, but his book was very unsatisfying um, in that regard. I don't think he was, he was particularly scientific about it. And yet, all that we see in the world is extremely complicated. Uh, there, I read a book over the summer. Actually, I listened to it while I was mowing the grass. I, I always have an audio book in my ear when I'm mowing. And uh, I, was, I listened to this book called... Um, uh, show me the honey, okay? <laughs> and it was all about raising bees. And just like the guy's explanation of, of the honeybee and how complex this creature is, it's amazing. I don't, I don't even understand half of it, but it's just an incredible thing to realize how small this creature is and how complicated it is and, and how incredibly in tune it is to its world. And God had to do that. I mean, I just, I look at that and go, this had to be God, I don't know how this could have just happened. But the reason we get there is because we suppress the truth. We see what's right in front of us. What's obvious to us should be that God exists and he created all of this. But because of sin, we suppress it. All right, let's keep going. Sorry, I spent more time on that than I wanted to. Um, Look at verse um, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So I think that's where we stop there, right? Yep, okay. Um, Here's Paul's point. Paul's making this point that sin has affected everything about us. It has caused us to distort what's really clearly in front of us. It has caused us even more deeply a a broken relationship between us and God. Look at how he describes sin. He describes it as dishonoring of God. He describes it as being, uh, having ingratitude towards God, not being thankful to God. He, He describes it as being foolish while claiming to be wise. And he describes it as exchanging God's glory for material things. That's just a taste. I mean, we could keep going. You could read the rest of Romans 1, and he just continues to unpack this argument. But sin is, it permeates everything about us. Further, looking at uh, chapter 3, verse um, 10 through 18, Paul doesn't just take his own word for it. He He actually quotes the book of Psalms. 
And so in verse 10, he says, as it is written. So now he's going to just quote a psalm for us. And here's what it is. So he's, he's basically making this argument that the created world shows us that sin exists because we don't believe what we're, we're supposed to see. And the scriptures affirm that we're sinners because it was written in the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in the paths of ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So again, this is, this is not so much a technical definition of sin as it is an illustration of sin. It shows us, see, and I, I really do believe, I don't think we need to be convinced that we're sinners. I think we just need to be shown the reality. That's, that should be very obvious to all of us. We all know, every single human being in the world knows there's something not right. And, and to, to whatever degree we believe that is really evidence of whether God's at work in our life or not and in that moment, right? We, we all come to deeper and deeper understandings of our sinfulness as we grow in him. But I think every human being, even the ones furthest from God, don't, know, don't believe that they're perfect, right? I, I don't know that anybody's at that point. And maybe some people would say they are, but whether they actually believe that down in their hearts, I think that's another issue altogether. So Romans 1 through 3, man, there's so much we could, we could talk about. But the overarching issue is that sin has permeated everything in our world and everything about us. So there's the bad news, okay? That's just, that's the fact. This is the bad news. We got to deal with some, some of that. We need to understand that so that we can appreciate the good news, which is really where he starts to take us in four through six. Again, can't read through all of this. So let's just hit one highlight spot here, Romans 5, 6 through 11. I think this, this passage, this paragraph really does a, an amazing job at showing us what Jesus has done for us. Look at what it says. For while we were still weak. Now weak there, in, in the, the Greek word there doesn't mean like unable to do some kind of menial task. It, it's really talking about helplessness. And some translations translate it helpless, which I think is a better translation. That's the idea. We're while we're completely unable to do anything for ourselves spiritually, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So remember how we're all suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, living in the ungodliness that is our sin? Well, here's the good news. At the right time, Christ came into the world and he died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Right? So he's saying that there are, there are examples of people laying down their life for those they think um, they ought to do that for, right? But, but generally speaking, you're going to die for someone or some cause that you think is worth 
giving up your life for. Instead, God does something totally unique. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christ didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. He didn't die for good people because there are no good people. There are only sinners. Only Jesus was perfect. The rest of us are all under sin. And so God, in his love, his great love for us, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified. That's a theological word for being made right with God, being restored to our right relationship with him. We've been justified by his blood. Now, uh, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Remember in the first verse we read in Romans 1, that we are under this wrath of God, that the wrath of God has been revealed in and towards unrighteousness. Now we're being told that God actually has saved us from this wrath, this anger at sin. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the, the second point is so clear. As you read 4, 5, and 6, the point is that Jesus came into the world to die for sinners and take, his, take our sin upon himself. That's the good news of the gospel, right? That, that we are all under sin, but that Jesus came into the world to set us free from that sin. And he did that by dying in the place of sinners, taking the wrath of God that was placed on sinners. He took that anger. He absorbed the wrath. He replaces it with love and acceptance from the Father. That's what the gospel gives us. And then third point here before we touch on Romans 8 is just chapter 7. Chapter 7 stands as a very unique uh, chapter. It's, it's, it's perplex. It, it, there's, a lot, there's been a lot of debate about it around theologians and, and uh, students of the Bible for a long time. But, but I think verse uh, 15 through 24 gives us the overview. Look at what it says. Paul's, now, Paul's speaking in, uh, of himself here. He's talking about his own life. And he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do uh, what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So uh, let's see, I got to go down to verse yeah, 24. So I find that it is uh, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war 
against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? All right, this is an amazing thing. I mean, it's very like back and forth, back and forth, right? I mean, so, so you, here's, what you're, here's what you're seeing. I think this is the third main point of the book of Romans, at least the first seven chapters. Paul's telling us through his own experience, through his own life, speaking of himself, he's telling us something that we all understand, we all get it, and it's this, that even though Jesus has set us free, we still struggle with sin. He's talking about this back and forth. He does the things he doesn't want to do because he wants to honor God, but then he finds himself back into some sin, right? He, he understands this pull back and forth, back and forth. And I know that that was a little bit of a technical thing and he's kind of being a little confusing in his, in his grammar there. I, I get it. But, but the overarching idea that he's, that he's bringing out for us is that, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're saved by grace in Jesus, but we're still sinners. Sin still persists in our life. And I think it's amazing what Paul says in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's going, I, I love Jesus, and yet there's a part of me that still loves sin. How do we get, how do we get past this? And so if Romans ended there, man, we would, this would be a very depressing letter, right? It'd just be like, well, okay. There's no hope there. But here's, here's the thing. There, there is hope. There's hope. It says, th- verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he again acknowledges he's got this internal battle between him and his sin. What he wants to do is honor Jesus. What he often does is dishonor Jesus so, it's very, notice, it's very, very important that we notice Romans chapter 8. Where does Paul go? He asks this question. He asks the same question that I, I asked at the beginning of this sermon. If Jesus sets us free, why don't we feel free? Paul asks it this way, who will deliver me from this body of death? But that's the same question. The question is, is if, if Jesus has done this work for us on the cross, why do we still struggle with all of this? So where does Paul go? That's where he goes. Verse 1 of Romans 8, 1 and 2. It says, There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is, I think, incredible. There's no, there, there's no bridge between Paul going, I'm a sinner and I'm always struggling with this sin. Even though I love Jesus, I'm still wrestling with this. There's nothing to kind of bridge the gap. He just immediately goes into, you know what? There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And there, there is freedom through the Spirit of God 
in Christ Jesus from this law of sin and death. He, he just goes straight into the gospel and, and he just reminds his heart of this reality that though we may not feel free, we are free. That is radically important to understand that because of what Jesus Christ has done for you in taking your place and dying on that cross and rising again, because of that, we are free. There's no, we might be free or we could be free. We are free in Christ Jesus. And this is where it's so important. You are free even when you don't feel free. We've got to get there. And we're going to spend the rest of this series walking through chapter 8 because Paul unpacks what this freedom looks like and how it's untapped and what we can, how we can experience it more and more in our daily life. But the fundamental issue in, in front of us is this. You may not feel free from sin. And in some regard, you're not completely because you still live in this body of, of sinful nature, right? When Jesus has made us free... We stand free and yet we still wrestle. But the fact is that our identity, who we really are, is not sinner anymore. It's saved believer who has no condemnation. And, and here, so here's the thing. We'll conclude with this. Um, when I talk with people, and, and I talked with a lot of people about these issues there, there seems to be an overarching issue um, in, in almost everyone's life, which is you're hearing voices or so something in your head, something in your heart telling you that you are never going to be good enough. You are never going to be able to overcome these things. You are never going to experience freedom. It's actually one of the biggest ways that Satan tries to harm you. See, Satan's a, the, the name Satan actually comes from a, a, an ancient word that means accuser. And, and that's his job. He's an accuser. He accuses you of things that Jesus Christ has forgiven in your life. He tells you that your sin is too great, that you're too bad, that there's no hope for you, that you've messed up again. And you know, we, we reinforce those things, those lies, because we know that we actually do live in those things. I was angry with my kids again this week, or I was, ang- I, I was angry at this person, or I, I struggled with, with this, this temptation or whatever. Right? We fill in, fill in the blank. You, you know that you continue to come back around again and again to some of the same old sins. And after a while, we start to believe, yeah, I, I don't think God's word is true. I don't think I stand not condemned. I think I stand under condemnation. It's one of the biggest lies Satan tells you that you've messed up again, so God can't possibly accept you. He can't possibly love you. It's over. Just throw in the towel. Just go on living the way you want. Don't give, don't give a care for Jesus. Don't believe a word of it. 
That's why I tell people, read Romans 8 until you believe it. Because it's, it's not intuitive for us to believe these things. We know the weight of our own sin. We know the guilt that rests on our shoulders outside of Christ. We feel it. We're attuned to it. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that because Jesus died for sinners, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the key phrase, right? Being in Jesus. That if you're not in Jesus, then that, this truth doesn't apply to your life. But if you're in Jesus, meaning you've put your hope in him, you've given your sins to him for forgiveness, you've, you've, you've crossed that line into faith, into, into who he is, then this does apply to you if you've done those things, even if you don't feel these things. And I think that this is just so important. So we're going to take a number of weeks just to kind of walk through these things together. But I wanted to give us the overview today so that we can fight these things even this week as we hear these voices, you know, hopefully not literal voices, but, you know, you hear these inner thoughts creep into your life and go, you know, you're just, you're a screw up. You messed up again. You ruined it again. We don't believe a word of it. Not if we're in Christ Jesus. The answer to the question, who will deliver me from the body of death, is Jesus has. And he will continue to love me even in my failures. And that's a wonderful thing. That's, that's life-giving. And that's where we need to rest. So let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for the kindness and the goodness that you have towards us. Lord, we, we have to admit that this is so hard to believe. It's so hard to, to get our heads around this. And uh, Father, we just pray that you would help us, that you would help our, our unbelief turn into belief. God, I just ask that we would give you honor and glory in all these things as well as we, as we pursue you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.